Hey everybody and welcome to the Big Bass Podcast, the fishing show where size matters. My name is Ken Duke. And I'm Terry Batiste. Our producer and engineer is Nathan Benson. This episode of the Big Bass Podcast, we'll be talking with Stephen Barden, director of the Major League Fishing Fisheries Management Division and one of the world's foremost experts on black bass. He's going to help us understand what it takes to produce giant bass. You know, I first met Stephen at the 2022 Major League Fishing Red Crest Championship Tournament. Uh, Gary Klein, president of MLF, had been telling me for months that I needed to meet this guy. So I had some pretty big expectations, and he has lived up to every one of them, Terry. Stephen's got yeah. a bachelor's degree in freshwater biology from Tarleton State University and a master's degree in fishery science from Texas A&M. So he is uh, uniquely well qualified and trained. Mm -hmm. In addition to his work with MLF, Stephen owns a private lake management company called Texas Pro Lake Management. He's written for several popular bass fishing platforms, is a member of just about every meaningful fisheries organization, and he has personally grown largemouth bass up to 17 and a half pounds. Stephen, welcome nice to the fish. Big Bass Podcast. Hey guys, I am so excited about this. Uh, since, since I heard about the Big Bass Podcast, I have been a loyal follower i uh, i subscribe on youtube spotify and apple Podcasts, so i don't miss an episode ever you're the one yes. thank you steven <laughs> thank you yes. we got it. yes our, <laughs> wow Cer certainly our most illustrious subscriber and listener so we really appreciate you for that um and thanks so much for joining us it's a big deal for us to have you on this is an angle we have not approached yet on the big bass podcast and that is to to talk with a a, an experienced and trained and very accomplished fisheries biologist about the thing that we're most interested in, which is big fish. So yep. it's a big deal for us to have you on. And, um, and, and Terry, one of the things that I've noticed about most of the fisheries biologists I've known through the years is a lot of these guys are, are state employees, you know, and, and mm -hmm. very few of those, very few, if any, state biologists, Stephen, seem to be focused on big fish, trophy fish. Uh, why is that? That's a great question, Ken. And, you know, you have to remember that biologists uh, that work for states, they have way more than just the bass fishing angling community to answer to. And, yeah. and the hard part about their job is they need to make sure that they create fisheries that have, a, you know, a diversity for all types of anglers. Um, they also have groups that they work with outside of fishing, uh, you know, other water authorities that control water level and things like that they've, they've got electric companies that they have to work with they don't control everything with the fishery so so they can't just make decisions based on let's grow the biggest bass possible uh, which which kind of limits plus we have old reservoirs that just don't produce those types of bass anymore and we have um you know outside of like those those use practices we have exotic species and budgets and so many things that make it challenging we're in the private sector. We work for one person, uh, you know, whoever owns that body of water, and we can kind of maximize whatever we want to do for it. Now, now, when you were in yep. school, did you did you envision yourself as going to work for a state or a, a, a public entity, or do you always know you wanted to go into the private sector? Yeah, at 13 years old, I made that decision that I wanted to to go into the private sector. Um, worked for myself. Uh, originally, while I was at Tarleton, I worked for a guy named Harold Arms, who was one of the godfathers of really Texas pond management. 
and Harold had a fifth grade education. And during the, the depression, his dad owned a dairy and said, the dairy's failing. You have to drop out of school and you have to go to work. So that wow. he had fifth grade and then everything he learned, he learned the hard way. And he taught me, um, I, I grew up on his fish farm, you know, through college and, and never once thought I should go to the public sector. I've never even interviewed for a public sector job. So impressive oh. that you've carved out such a terrific career for yourself. And, and folks, uh, Stephen is, is still a very young man. He's just in his mid-30s and enormously accomplished. Uh, and Terry, you've gotten to know Stephen a little bit here just in the last week or so. And and uh, yeah. I was so excited about having him on. And then and then I realized, oh, my God, Terry Terry's just as excited as I am about having Stephen on the show. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's amazing. You know, I think we started talking about three weeks ago. It was right after Red Crest. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about a few projects that we want to possibly work on together, uh, which I'm really excited about. Um, but what, what was it about raising big bass that got you, you know, started down that line? And, and can you tell us about your master's thesis? What was that done in? Yeah, I can, I can touch on both those. First, um, I was at dinner with Ken Duke at Redcrest. And I get back to my hotel room at 1030 at night. And there is Terry texting me saying, uh, Ken said I had to talk to you. We've got so many things we need to catch up on. So, um, yeah, it's a pleasure to meet you finally, Terry, kind of at least on Zoom. Um, I know me and Ken have had a lot of fun times together, so I can't wait to get to know you a little bit more. Uh, my master's work, it was on a unique uh, process. I, I was working for Harold uh, doing pond management. And we would tell every single pond owner, you need one surface acre to grow largemouth bass, and you need at least 15 acres to grow crappie. And so I was trying to figure out a way around those two things. And so what I, I worked on was using triploidy, which is the same thing we use in grass carp, where we uh, put the egg after fertilization uh, through a process of stress that prevents meiosis II from occurring, and that leaves three Which sets of chromosomes. What? What's meiosis too? I... <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's whenever the chromosomes are going to split and start to replicate. Uh, what it does is it, it doesn't allow those chromosomes to split. So you end up with two sets of female chromosomes and one set of male combined. So you have three sets of chromosomes within each cell, which renders the fish sterile. It's, it's how they create sterile grass carp. And so I was working on creating sterile largemouth bass and sterile black crappie to be stocked into ponds. Um, and it can be done. It, um, it's hard because you have a lot of mortality of the egg. Uh, you have about 30% survival uh, of, the, of the fry. And so they become very expensive offspring. And you can't physically tell the difference between a sterile fish and a non-sterile fish. So if anybody makes a mistake in the hatchery, all of a sudden you've stocked non-sterile fish or sterile fish in the wrong environment. So um, it can be done, but that's that's what I did my graduate research on. Um, and then from there, it, it was really a love of bass fishing. I grew up in a bass fishing family. My dad was, he fished Redman, English Choice, was tournament director, all those things. Um, I loved, you know, uh, in Fisherman TV, all, all the shows. Bill Dance Outdoors, like I loved all those things growing up. And so then whenever I decided I would do pond management, 
I wanted to basically give people the experiences that I had as a kid, uh, you know, fishing private ponds, maximizing their potential. And then I, I quickly learned that almost everybody in West Texas, I'm from kind of the Abilene area, everybody in West Texas wants to grow big bass. Uh, you see OHIV just down the road where I live. That's what people want is to grow big bass. And so that's what we do, Terry. We do that on a daily basis across private ranches throughout Texas. That's cool. So what does it take in a pond, uh, you know, to, to grow these, these big fish? Are you more apt to be able to grow a, a, a teener class fish in a, in a pond or is that more so a, a, a big reservoir? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think to kind of balloon out from there to, to zoom out a little bit, um, there are certain things that you need to grow trophy sized bass no matter what. Uh, those things are genetics. You you need Florida genetic to grow fish beyond, let's say, 13 pounds. Um, you need genetics. You need forage, an abundance of diverse forage species throughout every life stage of that fish. You need good habitat, and that habitat has to have, you know, escape habitat for those forage fish so they can thrive, as well as good ambush habitat, recovery habitat for those largemouth. Uh, you need excellent water quality, which includes the right temperature and what I will call the optimal growing days. Uh, we're going to definitely get into that. Ken and I have had a lot of discussion on optimal growing days of a largemouth bass. And then you have to reduce competition, usually through harvest. So your bass can consume as much forage as possible. If you do those five things, uh, whether it's a reservoir, whether it's a pond, um, you do those five things and you give it enough time then you can grow double digit fish and then you know what you guys specialize in these big you know these legendary fish um those are exceptions to those populations so you have to do everything right then you have to have the exceptions to the rules you just cool. nailed all my talking points for the entire program steve and you've killed my <laughs> outline already and you've hit it on such a high level i, I love it but I'm, I'm looking forward to digging in on, on all those things. And you one you touched on that, that has confused me for decades, unfortunately. And I had always, back in the 80s and 90s, for whatever reason, maybe just my misinterpretation of everything, I was led to believe that the, the largemouth bass that got the biggest were the first generation integrates between Florida bass and northerns. But, but since, more recently, last few years, I'm hearing that, that all the biggest fish, say those fish over 17 or 18 pounds are all pure Florida bass. What, what is the situation on that? No, it, it can vary. Uh, it, it definitely can vary, Ken. The, in the, the biggest data set we have for Intergrade versus Florida is the Share Lunker program uh, in Texas because they are actually taking genetic samples of each one of those fish. And initially, um, whenever the Share Lunker program began, Intergrades were dominating the population over 16 pounds. More recently, you're seeing a change in that, but I think that change is because of a policy change within Texas Parks and Wildlife. Um, they switched how they're producing share lunker bass, and now um, a share lunker bass is a Florida bass, and, or, or it's a Florida largemouth, and it's crossed with a share lunker offspring, which is also a pure Florida bass. So you're getting more pure Florida bass in that system. Um, so let me let me ask a yeah. question real quick. 
if if someone catches uh you know a 13 plus pound fish during the spring mm-hmm. what are the guarantees because i would think that that fish would be more apt to be an f1 hybrid than a pure florida so yeah. how are they i'm okay. confused there if it's a sherlunker offspring it is a florida if it is not a sherlunker offspring it is an integrate or a f- pure florida that has been stocked because text parks wildlife stocks pure floridas they stock sherlunker offspring which are pure floridas and then they stock um you know the f1 and and that's the integrate then in that environment those are made as well over time uh, there is no real pure northern or native bass in the state anymore you know we don't have a hundred percent native so you're not getting pure F1s created in the environment, you're getting FX at that point. Um, so Terry, it gets really complicated. Um, I, we do a DNA project at Major League Fishing, swabbing fish over seven pounds across the entire United States. And we haven't, we haven't found a fish yet in our project that is a pure Northern fish that is over seven pounds. Um, wow. So it's, I think genetics, what we knew about genetics in the 90s and the early 2000s was based on mitochondrial DNA, and we're, we're really diving further into genetics, and I'm not a geneticist, so um, I can give you uh, Dr. Peatman at Auburn University is who I use for all my genetics works, uh, but, but we're learning a lot more and to the point where we can actually determine parental DNA, so they can, they can tell you now especially in Texas, like, is this a Sherlunker offspring? And not only that, is it Sherlunker offspring from 379? And maybe it's a grandchild from 379. And so we have genetic lineage uh, that are built into these fish now to where in Texas in the next 20 years, um, you know, you you will definitely see grandchildren and great-grandchildren of Sherlunker offspring. So the Sherlunker program has pools that have only Floridas in it, right? So originally, uh, originally any Sherlunker caught, any fish over 13 would be spawned with a Florida, a Florida male. Now they've replaced those Florida males with Sherlunker offspring males. So what you Which would be a hybrid, which would be a hybrid, right? No, no, no. They would only select, they only used pure Florida females share lunkers to do that. So what you're getting is all Florida and we actually um, we actually call them Lone Star Bass. Uh, the offspring of share lunkers are, are Lone Star Bass now. As a Florida guy, I have to tell you both, it's very rewarding to hear a guy from California like Terry Batiste and a guy from Texas like Stephen Barden say Florida, Florida, Florida a lot. Florida, Florida, and I, Florida. I really like that. Uh, <laughs> hey, Ken, yeah. I, I want to I want to uh, blow your mind for just a second. There's recently been a, a paper published by um, a really good black bass geneticist, and he is proposing changing the name of the Florida and making it Micropterus salmoides because the original fish that was identified is likely Florida. Therefore, it is a largemouth bass, and the northern largemouth bass actually needs the new name. Um, wow. So you may <laughs> lose that Florida title, buddy. <laughs> uh, well, I'll vote for that, it. <laughs> won't that mess up 170 years of literature? 
That's all right. They change, they change scientific names you, all the time. You say that's all right because you're a really smart science guy. I'm a dumb bass history guy. I'm going to struggle through that. But, but I think we all know what the real bass is. We know it's a Florida fish, and I love that about it. Um, well, it's a Florida Georgia fish, Ken. You got to. No, no, no. You know, George, you gotta... George, George Perry's a fraud. George Perry's a fraud. We all know it. <laughs> he may be a fraud, but there were. You know, Florida wasn't the only you know place that had Floridana. Florida, Floridana's Floridana. bass. And Stephen, we're, we need to put out an all-points bulletin right now to anyone, anybody listening to this program, watching this program, who has uh, access to the Walter Bolonis 1975 Massachusetts state record largemouth that weighed 15 and a half pounds and came through the ice, we want to find out if that fish had Florida genetics. And yeah. if somebody has access to that old skin mount, let us know, please. And, and oh. that North Carolina fish that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, too. David, that would be... David Presley, 1976, yep. 1612. Yeah. I you mean, know, if, you, if you have access to any of those fish, uh, I, don't, I don't care any state record or questionable fish. If, if you have a skin mount, um, we, could, we could start pulling DNA. And we, we could that would rewrite so the cool. history books. Um, between Auburn University and... Texas Parks and Wildlife is kind of re they're tooling up because the success of the Sherlock program, they're tooling up to do more genetics work. And uh, I, I could pull some strings and get a fish ran through their system as well. That would be, that would be phenomenal. And, and what a, what a cool opportunity that, that that would be yeah. if you could do that first you, but, but speaking of Sherlunker, let's, let's, let's talk Sherlunker again for a moment. Um, I remember when Sherlunker was getting started and I think Alan Forsage was running that program and mm -hmm. at about 1990 or so, he promised a new world record from Texas within five years. And in that time, not only has Texas not produced a new world record, but Texas has not grown its own state record by even an ounce. Mm -hmm. What happened? Everybody, everybody seems to think of Sherlunker as this marvelously successful program. And I think it's been a great marketing effort, but it hasn't done much to increase the top end size being produced in Texas. It has not produced a world record. And that was probably a poor goal at the time. Or a marketing uh, ploy? No, I don't think it's oh, a marketing ploy. I think it's a poor on. goal. I, yeah, I, I disagree with you, Ken. I, I think that they honestly thought that they could produce mm -hmm. a world record fish at the well, time of doing it. I can tell you that, that uh, an official with the Texas Parks and Wildlife told me it was a marketing ploy. Yeah. Sherlunker uh, was originally a marketing play. Yeah, and I can tell you an official with the Big Bass podcast said, you're full of crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, but what do I know? But I, I, I think that... <laughs> Terry, Terry they, was I think, <laughs> I think, yeah, well, yeah, I, I don't want to... That wasn't what I was thinking. But the way I think about this is that they saw what was going on in California. They actually got California fish to yeah. stock into Texas. Uh, along with some Florida fish. And some Cuban and fish. Cuban? I didn't know about Cuba. Yeah, yeah there's uh, Cuban fish. Um, but you got to realize, like but, that at that time in Parks and Wildlife, they were bringing in peacock bass. They were trying, they were trying a lot of new things. Um, but the difference today is, is instead of focusing on Florida genetic as a random pool of fish, they're focusing on the advanced size fish and their offspring, offspring, and then recombining those fish. So, 
because we didn't know if there was genetic markers to growth, and we still don't, um, the best way to to win that experiment would be to take exceptional fish and combine them with other exceptional fish offspring. And so that only has really started the last six years. Uh, and and, and that's, I, I love that point, Stephen, because it, it ties into my thoughts of, of Sherlunker, and that is that the program has come a long way. Whether, mm-hmm. whether the science is catching up to the original goals or whether the, the marketing program has turned into a better science effort, uh, I do believe that Sherlunker is now approximating at least what it set out to do. And I love that about it because one of the things I always, and I have a spreadsheet on all the Sherlunker bass ever recorded. Right. And one of the things I learned from it is that each of these lakes that pops up and starts producing Sherlunker fish, fish over 13 pounds, they have a very brief window of one to mm-hmm. maybe three years. And then that window is shut, never to be right. reopened. Now for, for decades, the only exception to that was Lake Fork, Correct. a legendary trophy bass fishery. But now we're seeing fish come out of places like oh ivy where they had come out they'd also come out you know 15 20 30 years before and it's mm-hmm. good to see those places getting back and producing sherlocker fish again is that because of these genetic efforts no <laughs> no no i don't think so ken um oh is a unique case because oh ivy is the youngest reservoir within the state you know is it was impounded in 1990 and it saw an immediate, it, it filled rapidly. It saw an immediate growth class. Um, but then, then OHIV is on the Colorado River. And so it experiences drought flood condition. And so ah. OHIV will have these pulses where you'll get a new lake effect. So every 10 to 15 years, OHIV wow. is a new lake. And it's exactly what happened with Casitas, Ken. And, yeah. and Stephen and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago now and you get these drought conditions in california and the lakes drop 100 feet and then they go up you know five or six years later and there's all this new growth and it's like steven said it's it's a brand new lake and you've got vitamin t yes well that's the california drug there yeah that's that's (laughs) how they do it uh but if you look at if you look at ohiv you have it, it took from 1990 to 2000 for the first 13 pounder to grow 10 years. And then there was one in 2002 and then it went off the map for eight years. And then it had the big pulse in 2010 where 11 fish were caught. 2011, there were seven fish caught, but that was the beginning of a drought cycle. And there was two more fish caught in 2012 and then no fish caught until 2019. Well, the lake was basically dry. Um, in, in 2015 is when the lake really refilled and it refilled like 70 or 80% capacity. And we've seen 2019, 20, 21. Well, 2019 was the first 13 pounder since 2012. And there was one, we had another one in 2020 and then we went 15, 21, and then again, 15 this year. And it's, it's just unbelievable, uh, the size fish that it's producing. It's crazy. Oh, uh, Terry, when uh, Stephen and I, Stephen and I were at Redcrest this year, one of the things I I brought up because it occurred to me, you know, we're we're not only hearing a lot about OHIV, but we're hearing about how guys like Josh Jones uh, approached that lake and those giant fish there with their forward-facing yeah. sonar and these kind of bizarre open water techniques. And 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 I said to Stephen, I said, how many times do you think the world record would have been broken in the 80s and 90s 
if forward-facing sonar had existed back then. And Stephen, I'll let you answer that again. Oh, dozens of times. Yeah, dozens. Yeah. I, I think here's what people don't realize is we we started the United States. We started this reservoir building project in the really in the 50s, and it it peaked in the 60s and started to decline in the 70s. And today we build reservoirs at a lower rate than we did in 1890. So the opportunities for a new reservoir decrease every year. Texas has one that'll come online this year in Bodark. And new reservoirs, what they do is they provide the opportunity because they are flush with forage fish. Uh, the genetics is fresh in that reservoir. There's not a lot of competition. Once again, like those five key components that I talked about are there. And they're there in that new reservoir. And then after you get past that first 10 to 15 years, your management strategy has to change uh, to where you have to push for a trophy fishery. And Ken, this is one of the things you and I talk in depth about is, you know, how do we change a reservoir to put out a, a trophy fish or a world record? And there's, there's fundamental changes that have to happen within that fishery. A new forage item has to become available in an abundance that's, that's uh, outrageous, like the trout in California. That's a new forage item that's introduced and it, it provides the protein or a new genetic has to show up. But that genetic has to also um, have the ability to be showcased if forage is, is not abundant, if competition is high water quality is poor, number of growing days aren't correct, then genetics doesn't matter because genetics can only be highlighted by fisheries that can produce those quality fish. So if the fishery is already producing 10-pound northern largemouth and we put an F1 in, then we should expect 13-pound or higher F1s. And if it's producing those type F1s and we put pure Florida, then we should expect uh, those fish to increase in size and and that would be the potential for you know these these exceptional fish so we had a conversation i think two weeks ago Stephen, uh to where i i've had a formula in my head for years as to why right. texas has not put together a a fish that would even qualify for a 20 pounder um and and just looking at california you have trout you had floridas or f1s you had great water quality i mean they're all drinking water reservoirs out there and so therefore the water the, the, the lake people take good pride in in maintaining that water um and you know you had a, a good temperate uh environment but also deep water right and you know you could have a temperate environment uh, and not have deep water, but still not produce big fish. And what the deep water in California allows is when the surface temperatures get real high, it allows those fish to go, to go down into that 30-foot zone where they're comfortable. And it does not raise their metabolism. And, and it allows rainbow trout to thrive all year Well, around. Well, yeah, but, but once they get – once they become holdovers, Ken, they start growing – bigger than, than, you know, a, tra a bass can possibly eat. You know, those holdovers are generally in the two to three pound range. And yeah, a, an 18 pound fish could get one down, but your 10 pounders aren't, I don't think. 
So anyway, can you elaborate on, on that and how Texas, actually OHIV actually fits the tune. It's the only lake in Texas that has that much depth. Well, it's not the only, yes, it's not the only one, but it is okay. the one in the right system. I think, you know, Terry, what, what you're talking about, whenever we talked about it, uh, we talked about optimal growing days. And I think it's a great time to define that for everybody. So a largemouth bass, um, the the optimum time, the amount when it converts its forage into the to the most amount of growth happens between a water temperature of 65 and 85. You could really narrow that down and say it's between 70 and 75 if you really want to say this is when they're growing at their optimum rate. Anytime below 65, their metabolism is a little too slow. Anytime above 85, their metabolism is too quick. So they don't grow as well. So if I were going to plot out uh, a reservoir that's going to produce a world record fish, I need to maximize optimal growing days. Now, I also have to have winter. I need winter to give that fish longevity because there's another paradox to this, which is a fish uh, growing in a in a in just a perfect climate all the time, its metabolism doesn't slow down enough to make its life long enough, right? So fish in general, they live longer in cold water than they do in warm water. They have shorter life in, in the southern reaches of, of their population. <clears throat> but they grow to a larger size in warm water. So if you can combine those two things, i.e. California with depth, and, and a little bit of that cooler water, what you end up with is a fish that can live long enough to show you that maximum growth, but have enough optimal growing days to get it in a reasonable time, time frame. Steven, you gave a, a great analogy to me one day, and you made a, a, a stupid bass fishing writer understand. You talked about when you're managing a fish, you're, you feel like you're managing a certain number of heartbeats. Yep, yeah, that's one of the things I tell my clients specifically. Um, is let's say you have X number of heart rates within a fish the day it's born. The warmer water it's in, that heart beats faster because the metabolism is quicker. So you run out of heartbeats quicker. So if, if we can maximize growth at two pounds a year uh, to reach the next world record, we need a fish that can live 22 and a half years, right? Mm -hmm. 11 and well, a half years. Come on, yeah, guys. 11 and a half years. 11 and a half years. Come on. We're, we're we trusting you. We're Batiste is yeah. the engineer, not me. 11 yeah. and a half years, right? So we need something to live 11 and a half years. Well, if it's a, an extremely warm climate where that heartbeat's beating fast enough and we run out of those heartbeats before 11 and a half years, it doesn't matter what that growth rate was. It's not going to make it. And in a lot of our private fisheries, that's the problem we get into. We maximize food chain in the beginning, but we build their metabolism so quickly that they run out of steam towards the end. And so we shorten their lifespan. Conversely, up north, what we have is a slower metabolism, which means a slower heart rate. Uh, that fish has a slower growth rate. So although we can get largemouth to live almost 20 years, their growth rate uh, you know, is not fast enough to reach that world record potential. You know what would be a cool study would be to see a big fish uh, you know, eats, let's say, a trout. Right. And after it eats that trout, does it go down into the depths or does it go up into the warmer part of the water column to digest that fish quicker? You know, most of the time, uh, fish will stay towards the thermocline. So if there's a thermocline, it will stay in that region, especially in summer months. 
when those trout trucks come, I think that they gorge themselves on trout so quickly. It doesn't matter yeah. where they're at. Uh, fish you know, sticking out of their mouths. <laughs> yeah, trout. Trout are one of the few forage items that are that are almost perfect to grow trophy size fish in. So you think you know a trout is a fairly soft fish, uh, doesn't have hard spines. It's elongated fish, so it's easy to swallow, and then it's very high in protein because of what trout eat. The conversion rate is is very few steps, so it's a higher protein source. Well, but the the, the fish that they're it, that are in the California lakes, they're they all come from hatcheries, right? They're and pellet so trained. Those those they're well they're pellet trained, but they've been fed. I mean, what is the bottom line for a hatchery? They want to make money, and the faster they can get these eight to ten inch trout out, the 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 more money they're going to make. So they're going to feed them something that's high in protein, high in fat. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Maybe throw a little growth hormone in there. Oh come on, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> It's only going to happen in California. Uh, but, and who knows? And, and so a bass eats that for a diet right. from, let's say, the end of November through the beginning or end of April. I mean, they're putting on a lot of, a lot of weight in that little bit well, of time. And also think about the onset of that food item, the beginning of November to the end of April, when water temperatures are optimum in California, yeah. Southern California, for growth. So you're getting the best forage item you can at the right time. In California, then you have summer that occurs with no trout, which causes a, a slight issue with those fish because how do they compete in an environment where they're used to a truck providing them food? Absolutely. I mean, well, so let's just look at casitas because that's been on my mind lately. Um, the... You had the home guards that would be on the ramp that, that would essentially demolish all the trout or a high percentage of them as soon as they were released. But those trout would soon migrate to the rest of that 2,500-acre lake. And, you know, I mean, I, I would see, you know, fish, ch- bass chasing trout uh, two miles away from where they were actually put in the lake. So those, the, 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 the fish would disperse. Right. It's just... You know, yeah, you had the you had the fish that were next to the launch ramp that just sat there and got fat, uh, but there were fish all over the rest of the lake that were you know just as big. Yeah, they're just conditioned to the fact that an impulse of trout would happen periodically, and they although they can't think and rationalize, the trout truck comes every Tuesday. They can understand that those impulses happen periodically and. And they can prepare themselves for it. That's what you're saying. Steven, you mentioned, uh, obviously, that rainbow trout is kind of an ideal food, being easy to eat, the right shape, soft rayed fish, uh, full of protein. What are some other, and you also mentioned that the forage base needs to be diverse and plentiful. What are some other key components of that? Uh, Crawfish, panfish, golden shiners? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, that's a great question, Ken. Um, Let's start with crawfish. Crawfish, um, they're not a great forage item for a largemouth bass. But inherently, somewhere in the evolution of crawfish and bass, they became mortal enemies. And studies have shown that bass will consume crawfish 9 to 1 up to 22 to 1 over a sunfish. So... For whatever reason, they cannot stand crawfish. They're going to consume them. 
but it's a fairly poor protein item because it has this hard you know shell it has spines it's it's harder to swallow um it's harder to digest it takes more time and there's not a lot of protein within that crawfish so it's actually a pretty poor forage item although we use them in private management all the time uh, because they'll spark aggression in your fish so so they're stocked and used. Uh, there are some crawfish species that have softer shells, and so they, they would be slightly more advantageous to eat that. But a bass isn't really calculating calories and protein and, and things like that. They're just reacting. So they're reacting to whatever you know evolutionary uh, trait has made it to where they're mortal enemies. There, so, there are species... Oh, yeah, go ahead, Terry. I have a, a question. It has more to do with a myth that in the spring, bass eat crawdads, or they target crawdads, mm -hmm. because of the calcium in the shells produces better eggs. Is there any truth to that? No, and, and most of the calcium intake uh, from a fish is going to come through its gills. Uh, fish, at all times, fish are absorbing and releasing things through their gills. Their gills are one of the main organs to do that. They, of course, get oxygen. They release ammonia. The, the way a gill actually works is you have your blood flow that flows from the back of the fish towards the mouth. And so as the water comes in the mouth, they cross channel. And as they cross channel, minerals and ions can be added to the bloodstream while waste products like ammonia are released from the bloodstream. So they can get those things directly from the water. Wow. Such an education, Professor Barton. This is amazing. Um, Absolutely. I want to. I want to back up a little bit. You talk about uh, bass being predisposed to eat crawfish, like twenty-two to one over a right. bait fish or something like that. Why would we ever fish a lure that imitates oh. anything other than a crawfish? <laughs> I. I don't know. I mean, you know, whenever I have to fish um, to catch a lot of fish just a jig with a crawfish trailer seems to do it. We do a lot of harvest for our clients because harvest is a big component of trophy fisheries management. And uh, I, I use a lot of jigs with a crawl trailer because it works. I don't often think of that being here in Florida, but I know we have a lot of blue crawfish here in the state of Florida right. that obviously are, are a great forage. Um, one of the things you, you talked about earlier uh, was water quality and the optimal growing days and stuff like that. And, and that, that got me thinking about so many people who fish for big fish will, will say something that I've always known was crazy, but maybe you can dial it in for me. You know, somebody catch a pretty good fish, it'll weigh seven or eight pounds, and then they'll hold it up and they'll say, it would have weighed 16 before the spawn, you know, some crazy number like that. Right. They'll add two or three pounds to it. And it always drives me crazy. What would be a, a reasonable percentage of weight increase before the spawn versus after? Yeah, and, and typically we use the number 10%. 10% okay. is what the egg mass would weigh. Um, it, and it varies. So with all fish, um, as they increase in size, their number of eggs and their size of eggs increases. So a, a one and a half pound female does not produce the number of eggs or the quality of eggs that a 10 pound female would. But that number ranges can from 2,500 uh, eggs per pound of body weight up to 7,000 eggs per pound of body weight. And of course, the more eggs you have, the smaller they are individually. Um, I see. And, and then there's another great myth 
in the fact that we see female largemouth paired off with a male and we expect them to be spawning and that female releasing all of her eggs and she does not. Uh, a female largemouth releases about 25% of her eggs in that first spawn when she pairs off with a male. That lasts a, a day to two days and she leaves that nest and finds another male and continues the spawn because another evolutionary trick for a largemouth is to spread their eggs over as many nests as possible and over a longer time window just in case that temperature changes, right? If you have uh, your survival of your fry is, is more dependent on temperature than really anything else. So what you're saying is that female bass are hussies. Oh man, Terry! Man, <laughs> you're trying there. to corner me and get me canceled. Not this show. Yes. <laughs> you had to go there, folks. That's Terry Batisti. <laughs> Terry at thebigbasspodcast.com. If you yep. want to attack him. <laughs> um, so, Terry, is this why Ken doesn't let you talk often? <laughs> <laughs> it might be. <laughs> This is why I'm I'm very careful. I'm very uh, careful, but uh, it's but uh, you 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 talked about the evolution, and if she can have, you know, spawn with more males, it increases the genetic pool too, right? Genetic diversity. Um, if yeah. she can spawn early, especially with a very hardy male, then the you know the in theory those offspring would have an advantage because they would be born weeks to to maybe even months before other fry largemouth, and then. At some point, they could become cannibalistic and, and have that advantage uh, of just being an early spawn. But if uh, the weather conditions change and, you know, those fish don't make it, she doesn't want to have wasted all of her eggs. Now, she's not rationalizing any of this. This is just instinct. All right. Yeah. I, I feel like we're all over the place, Stephen, and that's my fault. And, and Terry's a much more organized brain than mine. But um, I'm curious about what for, Mike... Yeah. What might be the top end? We talk so much about largemouth bass. We'll have you on another time if you'll do it to talk about smallmouths and other things. But, but you've told me some amazing things that I want to get into in a moment. But first, we saw Dottie in 2006, I think it was, at 25 pounds, one ounce. Do you, as a, as a biologist, have a feel for what the top end of the species might be? It, it is so hard to imagine, Ken, because if I look at it as a mathematical equation, I say it takes... 10 pounds of forage to gain one pound on a bass. And how quickly could it eat that 10 pounds of forage? Well, that's dictated by forage abundance and competition. And then I throw into that equation optimal growing days uh, for that environment. And I come out with this number on if I can get it to live 12 years, um, what could it weigh? And I, I think it would be hard to rationalize a fish over 30 pounds right now just because nobody's done it um you know 25 is by far the cap 22 is is almost unachievable goal at this point it it seems like we struggle to get to 20 um but i think if we're talking as a species could you see a fish that weighed 30 pounds ever in history absolutely i, I think that would be crazy to think that it couldn't happen now what are the odds that that fish happened in an environment at the same time that Ken Duke or somebody um, who wasn't just going to eat this fish caught that fish and then and then happened to be in 2023 whenever we could publish it the right way like that becomes even more exponentially difficult to rationalize 
Well, I, I think the data is pretty clear, Stephen. If you catch a fish of that size, you have to eat it. Uh, tradition, <laughs> tradition, tradition says the law demands that. Uh, we've had so I've had so much fun talking with you at, at, at different events, and, and one of the things that uh, blew me away at our most recent time together was you talked about the possibility of, of raising world record class fish in regions outside areas we typically associate with those kind of fish and you tied that in with your your ideas about if you can make the fish live longer you have longer to work with it and feed it and so forth how far north do you think someone could conceivably grow a world record largemouth if the other elements were were right yeah i and i think this kind of stemmed off of our mlf genetics project uh you know we first talked about the furthest north pure florida that I know of that's ever been found, we found this last year in the in the Lake of the Ozarks in Missouri. And that was a pure Florida. It was a 98% fish, 98% Florida fish. And I, I think the conversation went something like, well, if that fish can occur there um, and we have the right forage available, their optimal growing days are probably more than OHIV has, for example. So if we had pure Floridas occurring at a greater number in those areas, uh, we might be able to see these exceptional fish grow and, and potentially a world record fish. And I think that that only increases as we start talking about climate change and the, and the fact that we're getting warmer water further north. And I, I jokingly said to you, it will just take a crazy biologist in Canada to introduce Florida genetic. And all of a sudden Canada has the world record because they also have a naive population. And that, that led me down the example of South Africa, where South yes. Africa has cichlids as their primary forage source. And cichlids did not know that largemouth bass ever existed. So whenever Florida bass were introduced in South Africa, we see 18 pound largemouth uh, all of a sudden with no management because we have a naive population of forage fish. So Or Japan. And Japan's Japan? further north. Japan is way further north than Texas, California, and Florida. Exactly. Um, and I mean, at the base of Mount Fuji, they're producing world record fish. Well, I don't know about the base of Mount Fuji. I know Biwa, which is uh, about well, it's the pretty same close latitude, to... which is I think a, more southern than say Atlanta. Um, I'm gonna look that up. Okay. You Excellent. looked that up. But... Steven, Steven, while he's distracted, let's talk about real yeah. stuff. <laughs> now, a, a, a pure Florida in Lake of the Ozarks, does that shock you or is that just further evidence of all the bucket biology that's happened in this country through the decades? Oh, it's both. Yeah, both. It shocks me because I expected pure Florida's maybe in the southern or probably the northern tips of Arkansas. That's as far as I expected a, Flor a pure Florida to occur. I expected to see some and, genetic. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, and naturally, you expect them naturally that far north? No, no. I, I think they would occur there because of um, both accidental stalking and, and, you know, on purpose stalking by state agency. Uh, we're seeing a lot of experiments with F1s. The hard part about an F1 is you can't really tell the difference between it and a pure Florida. So you have to trust your water. Some of these fish are coming from private hatcheries uh, being purchased by the state. So there's that component. There's also the component of 
anglers move fish. Uh, they just do. Yeah. We, we look at the proof is in Alabama bass. Alabama bass moved across this country by anglers. Um, that's the only answer to that. There's not there's not a state agency that was moving those fish around. Um, so we know that this happens. Now, it's so hard for us to fathom the fact that we can move enough to change a population. So I'm never going to tell you that because we found one pure Florida in Lake of the Ozarks that Lake of the Ozarks is pure Florida bass. That's not true. I'm saying that one exceptional fish happened to be a pure Florida, and that could have been a fish that was, uh, you know, in a hatchery. We thought it was whatever it was. The broodstock were tainted with Florida, and, and this is a Florida bass, or it could be a fish that was moved um, by an angler or even was from the private pond industry and washed into Lake of the Ozarks through a watershed from, from a dam breach or, or just, you know, float water. I've got a client that his, his lake discharges into the Brazos river. And I've seen people below PK catch 13 to 16 pound bass in the Brazos river in four foot of water. And they're coming right out of the, the client's lake whenever we have a flood pulse. So that, that does happen as well. Hmm. Terry, how's latitude your research of, coming? Latitude of Lake Biwa is the same latitude at Norris Lake, Tennessee. Okay, I'm wrong. There you go. It happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and I, 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 well, A, I hate to end this being wrong, but uh, <laughs> B, Stephen, this has been fabulous. And we have so much to talk with you about. And uh, I hope you'll. I hope you haven't had such a terrible experience here that you won't come back really soon because we want to get you back to talk no, about a, a lot of stuff. I would love to be back on the Big Bass Podcast. As I said, it's it's my favorite show to listen to. It's it's just an honor to talk to you guys. Hey Ken, we got to pay is you ours. after this. Remember? Yeah, you said you'd write the check, Terry. Okay, yeah, no worries. It. It's in the mail, right? I got yes. I got I got dinner last week. Remember? Okay. Okay, Nathan. <laughs> cut it. Cut it here, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, Terry. We're gonna we're gonna slam the door without slamming the door because we're gonna have Stephen back on many times. But uh, uh, in the words of the inimitable James Brown, take us to the bridge. Yeah, it's uh, it's time to slam uh, the door on this episode of the Big Bass Podcast. But before we go, please remember to subscribe, like, share, give us you know comments. We enjoy talking to you folks, uh, at least in the YouTube comments section. It's a small ask, but it, it really helps us out. And don't forget to check the website uh, at thebigbasspodcast.com. There you're going to find uh, the Big Bass Podcast calculator, which actually Stephen and I are going to be working on, uh, and our listings of record bass plus supplementary material on episodes. It's a work in progress, but if you like the show, we think you'll like the, uh, the website. If you want to contact us, our email addresses are ken at thebigbasspodcast.com. Terry at TheBigBassPodcast.com and Nathan at TheBigBassPodcast.com I'm Terry Battisti and on behalf of my partners Ken Duke and Nathan Benson and our guest Stephen Barden, uh, thanks for joining us. Be sure to check uh, back next week and we'll have a new show with a story that you will not and cannot find anywhere else. And remember, size matters. <laughs> <laughs>